inequality and the future of capitalism. Some of you in the room don't want to discuss this, but we're going to have a good time looking into it. We, uh, we also have uh, an outstanding academic uh, to start, Rebecca Henderson, and uh, we will then hear from David Wood. This is our last academic presentation of the conference. Uh, I'd like to make note that Rebecca Henderson, with our friend yesterday, George, co-teaches Reimagining Capitalism, a course at the MBA of Harvard, which won the 2018 Aspen Institute Ideas Worth Teaching Award. Before we get started, we're going to have a six-minute video, please. There's a chart I saw recently that I can't get out of my head. A Harvard business professor and economist asked more than 5,000 Americans how they thought wealth was distributed in the United States. This is what they said they thought it was. Dividing the country into five rough groups of the top, bottom, and middle three 20% groups, they asked people how they thought the wealth in this country was divided. Then he asked them what they thought was the ideal distribution. And 92%, that's at least nine out of 10 of them, said it should be more like this. In other words, more equitable than they think it is. Now that fact is telling, admittedly, the notion that most Americans know that the system is already skewed unfairly. But what's most interesting to me is the reality compared to our perception. The ideal is as far removed from our perception of reality as the actual distribution is from what we think exists in this country. So ignore the ideal for a moment. Here's what we think it is again. And here is the actual distribution, shockingly skewed. Not only do the bottom 20% and the next 20%, the bottom 40% of Americans barely have any of the wealth. I mean, it's hard to even see them on the chart, but the top 1% has more of the country's wealth than nine out of 10 Americans believe the entire top 20% should have. Mind blowing. But let's look at it another way because I find this chart kind of difficult to wrap my head around. Instead, let's reduce the 311 million Americans to just a representative 100 people. Make it simple. Here they are, teachers, coaches, firefighters, construction workers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, some investment bankers, a CEO, maybe a celebrity or two. Now let's line them up according to their wealth. Poorest people on the left, wealthiest on the right, just a steady row of folks based on their net worth. We'll color code them like we did before based on which 20% quintile they fall into. Now let's reduce the total wealth of the United States, which was roughly $54 trillion in 2009, to this symbolic pile of cash. And let's distribute it among our 100 Americans. Well, here's socialism, all the wealth of the country distributed equally. We all know that won't work. We need to encourage people to work and work hard to achieve that good old American dream and keep our country moving forward. So here's that ideal we asked everyone about, something like this curve. This isn't too bad. We've got some incentive as the wealthiest folks are now about 10 to 20 times better off than the poorest Americans. But hey, even the poor folks aren't actually poor, since the poverty line has stayed almost entirely off the chart. We have a super healthy middle class with a smooth transition into wealth. And yes, Republicans and Democrats alike chose this curve. Nine out of 10 people, 92%, said this was a nice ideal distribution of America's wealth. But let's move on. 
this is what people think America's wealth distribution actually looks like. Not as equitable, clearly, but for me, even this still looks pretty great. Yes, the poorest 20 to 30 percent are starting to suffer quite a lot compared to the ideal, and the middle class is certainly struggling more than they were, while the rich and wealthy are making roughly a hundred times that of the poorest Americans, and about ten times that of the still healthy middle class. Sadly, this isn't even close to the reality. Here is the actual distribution of wealth in America. The poorest Americans don't even register. They're down to pocket change, and the middle class is barely distinguishable from the poor. In fact, even the rich between the top 10 and 20 percentile are worse off. Only the top 10 percent are better off. And how much better off? So much better off that the top 2 to 5 percent are actually off the chart at this scale. And the top 1 percent, this guy, well, his stack of money stretches 10 times higher than we can show. Here's his stack of cash, restacked, all by itself. This is the top 1% we've been hearing so much about. So much green in his pockets that I have to give him a whole new column of his own because he won't fit on my chart. 1% of America has 40% of all the nation's wealth. The bottom 80%, 8 out of every 10 people, or 80 out of these 100, only has 7% between them. And this has only gotten worse in the last 20 to 30 years. While the richest 1% take home almost a quarter of the national income today, in 1976, they took home only 9%, meaning their share of income has nearly tripled in the last 30 years. The top 1% own half the country's stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. The bottom 50% of Americans own only half a percent of these investments, which means they aren't investing. They're just scraping by. I'm sure many of these wealthy people have worked very hard for their money, but do you really believe that the CEO is working 380 times harder than his average employee? N not his lowest paid employee, not the janitor, but the average earner in his company. The average worker needs to work more than a month to earn what the CEO makes in one hour. We certainly don't have to go all the way to socialism to find something that is fair for hardworking Americans. We don't even have to achieve what most of us consider might be ideal. All we need to do is wake up and realize that the reality in this country is not at all what we think it is. And with that, please welcome Professor Henderson. Whoa, <laughs> that's quite a video. Um, and it's, uh, as you probably know, gotten worse in the last 10 years since that video was made. So, so my name is Rebecca Henderson. I know only enough about finance to be dangerous. My father was a stockbroker. That tells you how much I know. Um, what I'm a specialist in is innovation and change. I spent the first 20 years of my life as the Eastman Kodak director of, uh, Eastman Kodak chair of management at MIT. And that's what I did. I worked with firms like Kodak, like Nokia, like Motorola. Do you remember these names? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to understand why 
It is so hard, even when you can see the future coming down the track towards you, to do anything about it. That's what I do. And about 15 years ago, I started to read the science on global warming, and I thought, whoa, it's a train coming down the track. And now we have another train coming down the track towards us. And mostly, we're not doing anything. So I want to talk a little bit about whether we should maybe be doing something. And I'd like to begin by asking you to take out a piece of paper or a notebook or something you can scribble on. And I promise I'm not going to ask what you wrote down on the piece of paper, unless you end up wanting to tell me. And I want you to answer the following question. Is inequality a problem? And you're going to say, for who? So I'd like you to answer three questions. Is inequality a problem for the world? Is inequality a problem for you as a citizen and a parent? And is inequality a problem for you as an investor? You got that? Inequality a problem, world, self, investor. Three minutes, please. Just jot something down. Feel free to talk to the person next to you if it's useful. I'll get, hi, it's good to see you. I'll get feedback my own way. Um, uh, how much time do I have? How much time do I have? Uh, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah. I, well, because we'll start running late if I take the full 30. stop at 3.30 and I have to be out of here at 3.30 or 7. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, let's try the easy question. Is inequality a problem for the world? Hands up if you think probably yes. Okay. So, you're all pretty sure. It turns out to be a harder question than you think. I mean, don't get me wrong, I completely agree with you. Inequality is a massive problem for the world. But let me complicate things just a tiny little bit. It depends on the kind of inequality, right? Some inequality, the video notwithstanding, is good. It can be a sign of investment and entrepreneurship and the fact that the society is growing faster. 
inequality per se is not always and everywhere a problem. Inequality becomes a problem under two circumstances. One is where it's a sign of a redistribution of wealth rather than all, you know, some people are doing better, everybody else is doing okay. And secondly, where it starts to hurt aggregate demand, right? And arguably, we have both problems now, which is why you all said, whoa, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really a problem. You should know, for example, that worldwide relative inequality has actually fallen. That progress in the developing world, in China and Brazil and India, but particularly in China, has been so fast that when you look across countries, inequality has fallen. So that's a good thing, right? And inequality has gone up in some of those countries, but if in China, for example, they've brought, as you know, a billion people out of poverty. Inequality has risen, but arguably that society is much better off. The problem we have in the West, particularly in the US and Europe, but particularly in the US and the UK, is that inequality has risen dramatically and the people at the bottom are not seeing any gains at all. Worse than that, they have the perception they're falling behind. Even worse than that, they're beginning to lose faith that their children will do better. There's a fabulous book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth by Ben Friedman, who's a professor in the economics department at Harvard. And he shows in quite some detail that when the people at the bottom cease to believe that things are going to get better for them, they will become much less tolerant of other people getting rich and, this book was written 15 years ago, they will become much less tolerant of people who don't look like them. So it's exactly what we're seeing, is I don't think my children are going to do any are, are, are going to do better. I think two things. I think the elites have rigged the games in their own favor. And those pointy-headed professors at Harvard who drive Priuses and don't eat meat, you know what I think of them. I'm serious. You know, they said the world was going to be better. It's not better for me. Problem number one. And problem number two, so we're seeing, as you know, declining levels of trust in government. Um, trust in institutions in general is collapsing. That's a huge problem. And secondly, they don't like people who don't look like them. And so we're getting a move towards populism. So inequality, not so great for the world. But the third question I asked you is, is inequality bad for you? Does it matter if you're an investor? Why might inequality be bad for asset owners? So let me take a show of hands first. How many people think inequality is probably bad for asset owners? So if you could wave a wand as an asset owner, you would try and fix it. That's the sense of the room. So as a group, you are crusaders for redistribution, for heavy-duty investment in education and health. Yes? Am I taking the room with me? I love the nervous laughter. Love the nervous laughter. Okay. I would suggest to you 
that if all the assets in the world belong to a single person, or 10 people, or 15, that group would be very jumpy about inequality. That group would be very worried that the political situation we're in right now is likely to lead to uncontrollable consequences that will have very significantly negative effects on economic growth. So that small group, if we could do the thought experiment, all the asset owners in a single room, they're all members of a single family, or maybe there's just one person, that group would take action. Can I take you that far? You with me so far? Seems plausible. I'm really pushing you. Anyone jumpy? No? I can't tell if you're very polite or completely persuaded by what I'm saying. So let's for the moment stay with this that if we had perfect coordination across all asset owners, we would do what we could to fix this problem. Let's take that as a base, and I'm going to suggest that leaves us with two very hard problems. Because by the way, may I ask, is inequality a problem to you as an individual? If you as an individual could take action, would you do something? How many people here really, it really bothers them, they really want to do something? Yeah, like everybody wants to do something. It's a huge problem. So now we're left with two problems. The first is there are more than 10 people in this room. There are more than 10 asset owners. There are, pick a number, but it's quite a big number. I mean, asset management is quite concentrated. Asset ownership is quite concentrated, but it's not 10 people. And we have what's known technically as, wait for the heavy-duty academic concept, the prisoner's dilemma. Are you familiar with the prisoner's dilemma? The prisoner's dilemma is the following. Oh, I think we should uh, fix inequality. Absolutely, you go first. Because, suppose it's expensive to do this, you want everybody else to skew their investment portfolio to reduce inequality, but you, you have returns to make. You, you have obligations. You're fine with everybody else taking action, not so good with yourself. Classic collective action problem, yes? Serious collective action problem, same problem as, as global warming. That's the first problem. The second problem is, now I'm really nervous, do you think you can actually make a difference against inequality? Suppose this whole room, suppose every major asset owner in the world said, yes, we're going to fix this. Do you think you could? Let's just play this out for a moment, please. Would you at your tables, suppose you have no collective action problem. Suppose you're not worried about rates of return. What you want to do, not worried in the sense of you're not trying to max, max, max. You want decent returns. Could you address inequality? What would you do? Three minutes at your table, please.
Okay. So, how do you fix inequality? Um, are the mics at the table live? Can I call on people? Yeah. So, how do you fix inequality? I want a candidate solution. I'm quite prepared to cold call. <laughs> on the right. Uh, Fiona Reynolds from the Principles for Responsible Investment. So we actually have done some work on this. So from an investment... So, so don't blow it all out of the water. Give me just one way okay. you could solve inequality. Well, one way. It's not going to solve the whole problem. I know. But in the corporations we invest in, make sure that they pay people fair wages and stop trying to exploit people in supply chains. Make sure everyone gets a living wage and good benefits. Okay. So let's put that as number one on our chart. Let's see if we can persuade most firms to provide decent jobs that pay reasonably with decent benefits. Okay, number one, cool. By the way, it's not going to solve the whole problem, right? We could talk more technically about this, but it's not. Why not? Do you have a sense of why it doesn't solve the problem? It would make a huge difference. Would we like it to happen? Yes, absolutely. Will it solve everything? No, why not? Why not? Go on, um, Amanda, you want to like volunteer? There's lots of people that aren't employed by corporates. So we have a number of people who aren't employed by the firms we can reach. That's going to be tough. Number of people in the shadow sector, number of people unemployed. So that's going to be one problem. Good. Why else is it only going to get us part of the way? It's called returns to skill. There's a big change in the world, which is the value of high-end skills appears to have gone up in absolute terms. So that the returns to being able to manipulate signals, uh, to manipulate symbols and be coherent in public has gone up dramatically. So that means that one of the reasons the top 10% and the top 1% are taking home so much more is that they are genuinely more productive. It's only a fraction of the effect, but it's a real effect. And, and so what you're seeing is skills at the bottom of the skill distribution are no longer seeing the kinds of returns they used to get. And the reason this should make you jumpy is AI and automation has the risk of making this significantly worse. So, I'm looking at people in the top 1%, certainly in the top 10%. Typically, our children don't feel they've been given life on a silver platter. I don't know about you, but it was a struggle. You know, college, find the job, fight like crazy. There's immense competition within the 10%, but it's getting increasingly difficult to get into that top group. The educational ladders are increasingly blocked, the social ladders are increasingly blocked, and the returns to being in that group are escalating. So, fabulous, love the idea of paying more. What else do we need to do if we're really going to address inequality? Benjamin, what else do we need to do? He, he, he took the words out of my, out of what, my what, mouth. What did he say? Um, massive investment in education. So, massive investments in education, 
Okay, so now we're playing, notice we're playing if I were the president, or I were the governor, or I were the Congress. So let's play that for a little bit. Massive investments in education, what else would you do? Come on, you're God, have fun. What else can you do? Yes, table nine. Just grab a microphone, please. Just announce where you're from, please. Uh, my name is Rosalind Zhang. I'm from China Investment Corporation. I uh, just want to share uh, what CIC has done uh, in recent years. Uh, actually, uh, last year, our firm spent 500 million US dollars uh, on four uh, poverty-ridden uh, 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 suburban uh, 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 counties in China, like they are the rural area. Uh, what we have done is uh, we we have the, we budgeted the money. We sent a team of uh, people, team of professionals. So we went there. Uh, we worked with the local um, officials to identify why, wh what's the cause of uh, poverty, and what 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 they can do actually to get them out of poverty and be on a very sustainable uh, self-reliance uh, stage. So uh, we, uh, our team actually together with the local government, we actually work out a program. Uh, we identified a few ways to help them. And then, of course, with uh, our financing, uh, we actually get them on track. So now, we, um, for example, uh, every uh, other Chinese holidays, we actually get uh, the local produce, some pears or chickens, and we get, help them to get through the modern e-commerce, like JD.com. We got all the whole logistics, and they can put on the markets. So they, they actually, we get the channel set up. Uh, that's what uh, uh, CS has been doing, and, uh, but it's all across the country initiative. Actually, this is uh, the top two, one of the top two initiatives by Xi since he came uh, to the leadership, uh, which actually uh, is quite uh, effective um, in, in eliminating, it's called a precise elevation of poverty in China. Uh, that we have been actually, I personally, I have been involved as well. Yeah. So that sounds fascinating, and I'm sure other people want to know more detail. But what you put on the table is if you have a government that's willing to address this problem, it's perfectly addressable. Education, health, money on the ground to people who need it, building up the communities, strengthening bonds, putting in infrastructure, there's a policy list. So that's good, right? Let me point out something about that list. It's not something you guys can do, right? I mean, in, unless any of you are more powerful than, than I wonder. So we have that the most powerful lever to reduce inequality is a policy lever. And we have governments that are widely mistrusted in most places, widely mistrusted in most places, and seemingly unable to do anything. So, what can investors do? So, I hope I've at least made you thoughtful. I have seven more minutes to give you an answer, okay? Because this cycle of thinking that I've just taken you through is the obvious cycle, right? We have massive social problems, we need to have them addressed, but the private sector has a significant public action problem, and besides, what the private sector can do might be important and make a difference, but nowhere near enough to solve the problems. So we are in a pickle. That's the technical term. 
So let me make a suggestion and see if you like this. And if you find it interesting, you can ahem buy my book out in April called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, which, uh, which says what I'm about to say now in seven chapters rather than seven minutes. So, oh, uh -huh. I have 15 minutes. <laughs> I may not need them. I'm used to doing this in minutes. seven minutes. Um, so here's an idea, okay? So the first point to start is this is a collective action problem. If we all agreed we really wanted to solve this, we could solve it. One of the ways we would solve it, and this is going to make you jumpy, is by putting pressure on the political institutions. And when I say pressure, I don't mean pressure to implement particular policies. I mean pressure to run decent, transparent, democratic institutions. What we know historically is the solution to poverty is balancing free markets and free politics. The data is very clear on this. If you talk to a development economist, what they will tell you is the precondition for development is a working free market and a working free government. A government that is not controlled by money, a government that is genuinely democratic and open to everyone's pressure. So that's what we need, that's where we need to go, markets and politics in balance. So how do we get there? Try this as a story. Step one, individual firms or individual investors start looking around for can they make money themselves by addressing this issue? Can they model the kinds of behaviors that we need? Answer, probably yes. Did you know this statistic? I love this statistic. In the average industry, the most productive 10% of firms are more than twice as productive as the least 10%. I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms at the National Bureau of Economic Research trying to make this result go away. Economists hated it. It was called a firm fixed effect. You would control for capital, believe me, quality, vintage, location. You would control for pricing power. You would control for labor quality. You would control for everything you could control. And the average firm is more than twice as productive as the least. What is driving that? It's correlated with governance. Family firms are less productive on average than publicly traded firms. But it's mostly correlated with management practices. Do you use teams? Do you continuously improve? Do you show high levels of communication? Is promotion on the basis of achievement rather than on the basis of seniority or politics? McKinsey's study, thousands of firms, 20 years of data. Uh, the lead authors, John Van Rien at MIT, Nick Blooms at Stanford. This result is very strong. You could think about colloquially as the difference between Toyota and General Motors. You remember when Toyota first came on the scene? It made cars in half the time at half the cost and assembled them with half the labor hours. How? 
because they were managing people with trust and respect, because they were paying them decent wages and not continually at war with their labor force. So I can tell you that there is a better way of managing, and you'll think I'm going to go all mushy on you, but there is a better way of managing. Not all the time, not every industry, not every firm, but there's a great deal of evidence that you can take the same old bunch of people, Toyota took over the worst plant in the General Motors system and brought them up to the Japanese average. Same people. So there is something going on in human capital management that is real and in principle provides the money you need or the firms in your portfolio need to pay better. So that is a real thing to think about. So let me really daydream and assume that everyone in this room got religion and they were like, oh, I gotta go do that and how do I do that and what kind of metrics and how would I support firms in doing this? Notice why it's so hard to do because what are the metrics and what's the time frame? I am a purpose-driven CEO and I want you to give me, you know, five years of mediocre return and lots of love and I promise you at the end we'll have a culture and an organization that hums. You're not feeling too keen, are you? You want milestones. You want to know, you know, what you can measure, how I'm making progress or am I just uh, spinning you a line? But there's, I believe, a great deal of money lying on the floor that can be addressed through this mechanism. It would make an enormous difference. So that's step one. Um, step two uh, is you decide that, whoops, you've raised your labor costs and you like your high, high road labor model and it's really going great and you're Walmart and you're paying everyone more and you're getting them to be more productive and they're nicer to the customers and it feels good but you're competing with all these jerks who aren't playing the same way and are undercutting you on a regular basis, and whoa, it would be super helpful if we all raised wages. It would be super helpful if we all agreed to invest in local education and support the local community college. What we need is cooperative action. Now, let's be clear. I'm not telling you about something that isn't happening right now. There are hundreds of firms trying to pay their employees more, thousands perhaps, and they are discovering that yes, you can make a difference, but my goodness, it would help if everyone else in the industry did the same thing. So that's progress, right? Now tell me, investors can help firms transition in the first place by understanding what they're trying to do, by measuring what they're trying to do, by being willing to invest in firms that are trying to take the high road. I think investors could help enormously coordinate action within industries or within regions. You could say to the firms in your portfolio or you could tell the asset managers who manage the firms in your portfolio that, hey, I only want to invest in firms that are taking the high road. I want to freeze out the marginal firms, the firms that cheat, the firms that behave badly. Investors have enormous power in potentially enforcing the right kind of collusion across the economy. Possible? So you're saying, well, that sounds pretty good, Rebecca, but I studied the uh, prisoner's dilemma in school, and I know that it doesn't hold together, and we can't agree on anything. We're not going to be able to agree to hold all the firms in our portfolio to account. We'll forget that. So what do you do then? Then you say, whoa, maybe we need public policy. Maybe we need genuine labor law. 
maybe we need, now I'm really out on a limb, a strong voice for labor. One of the strongest determinants of lower levels of inequality is some kind of organized voice for employees. I know you hate it. I've been a business school professor for 30 years. I sit on two Fortune 500 boards. I know what you feel about organized labor representation. But I'm telling you, one of the reasons we have accelerating inequality is because there's no organized voice on the other side. And at that stage, you say, if we don't push to improve our institutions and improve our policies, we lose the whole game. This is already happening in the environmental sphere. The example I personally know best is the fight to make palm oil sustainable. Initially, individual firms thought they could stop deforestation in their own supply chains, and they would be good. It soon became clear that no, you had to get the whole industry to cooperate if you were going to stop deforestation. So they formed units like the a Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil. They got everyone together. They got 67% of the world's purchase of palm oil to agree to be sustainable. They thought they were done, that they would tip the whole supply chain. Nike had the same experience in labor conditions. Let me do it in my own supply chain. Whoops, won't work. Let me move to a, a sustainable apparel coalition. We'll get everyone in the industry, every buyer in the industry to say we won't buy from you unless you pay a decent wage and take good care. They built the cooperative institutions and they did not work. They work okay. They're much better than the alternatives. But what you learn as you fight your way through these kinds of cooperative moments is you need government. You need labor inspection. You need penalties. You need the Indonesian government to crack down on illegal logging. Otherwise, you are done. So now, I suspect you're sitting here going, nice story, Rebecca. Is it really going to happen? Has business ever really banded together and insisted on strong institutions and real democracy? Has that ever really happened? Like, give me a break. So I have good news and bad news for you. Which do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Okay. You want to start? Oh, I'm not going to start with the bad news. <laughs> Here's the good news. It has absolutely happened before. Not that often, but it has happened. The example you may have heard tell of that's perhaps the best documented and the most well-known is what happened in Germany after World War II. Germany after World War II was essentially leveled. There was nothing, everything down to the ground. There was enormous friction between business and labor. And the largest business association went to the largest labor association and said, let's do this differently. Let's build a society in which everyone is decently paid, where the educational system uh, supports skill development all the way up and down the income distribution. Let's not get too greedy. Let's build a government that's genuinely democratic. Let's do this. And it worked. People have been waiting for the German model to break down since at least 1981. Still going. It also worked um, in, uh, in Mauritius. Anyone ever been to Mauritius? 
one person's been to Mauritius. It's an island off the coast of Africa. In 1968, they, uh, Mauritius was given independence by the British. There were riots. They had to put troops in the streets. People got shot, 500 people shot. Why? Because Mauritius was split between a small French elite that owned all the productive assets, namely sugar plantations, and a huge population of Hindu um, nationals who'd been imported to work in the sugar plantations, initially as bonded labor, but later just as labor. Horrible ethnic tension. The left won the election. Everyone expected the Franco-Europeans to leave, to take their assets with them. They expected the economy to fall apart. A future Nobel Prize winner wrote a report saying Mauritius was a classic basket case. It was going to go the way of the rest of countries like this. But the head of the labor government reached out to the head of the business association and said, let's do something different. They formed a unity government. The first requirement of their development was decent jobs for people at the bottom. And Mauritius is now, by many measures, one of the most successful companies in our, uh, countries in Africa, certainly in the top three. So it has happened. This is the good news, yeah? So can you feel the bad news? You feel the bad news here? The bad news is this only happens when people are looking at disaster. So I told you I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management, and I work with Nokia and with Motorola. The easy thing, the human thing, is to wait until we're about to crash and then scramble. And sometimes that's worked. But I'm here to tell you it hasn't worked very well politically, historically, and it hasn't worked great for companies either. And it feels to me as though we are just waiting. It's clear what needs to happen. You all know what needs to happen. But we're reluctant to move. We're reluctant to move individually. We're reluctant to move together. We're reluctant to move politically. And so before I get you totally depressed, let me close with what I think is very good news. I spent 20 years studying organizational change. And what did I learn about what took the firms that did make it through those kinds of transitions? What did they, I work with Corning, for example, still going strong, five major transitions. I work with Cisco, still going strong, three major transitions. What makes the difference? You remember that stuff about treating people with dignity and respect? and having a high road labor strategy. Sometimes I call them purpose-driven organizations. Sometimes I call them meaning-driven organizations. The firms that changed are those that believe they had a reason to change, a personal, passionate, moral reason to get through the change. That's what gives you the energy the creativity, the trust to take the risk. So this idea that we need to build high-purpose firms, like right now, is not some would-be nice. This is an absolute essential, because it's only if we can change the entire moral frame of our economy that we will fix these problems. 
that's not crazy. I would guess if I could take any one of you out for a beer, you'd say, you know, I became an investor because I care about freedom and prosperity. I think capitalism is the best system in the world. I'm proud to be an investor, and you should be. But when the system no longer generates freedom and prosperity, it does not deserve our allegiance. It must be changed. And I think all of you have a sense that change is necessary. Change is eminently possible. We have the resources, we have the technology, we know how to do this, we just have to decide to try. Firm by firm, industry by industry, country by country. Thank you very much. So I'm now going to invite back to the stage to make a response before we go to questions. Professor David Wood, whose credentials are on the screen. David, what do you think of all that? It's hard to argue with, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Oh, I got so much <laughs> I can argue with. No, I, so, so I was talking to George uh, Seraphine before he presented yesterday, and he said, I hear you're going to respond to what Rebecca's going to say. And I said, well, yeah, I think so. And he said, well, what are you going to say? You are going to agree with everything she says anyway. So I made some notes of the things that she was going to miss, you know, like a few minutes before she started. And I just went down the list. And he said everything I was going to say anyway. Uh, that was characteristically brilliant. I just want to make th uh, three points. Um, so I've been on the inequality circuit. There's like a, there was a great article in The Nation a couple years ago on the inequality circuit. Or there was another sort of inequality industry. Uh, everybody started talking about inequality because of, well, you know, Brexit, Trump, uh, uh, the IMF, the OECD, there's new research, there are political movements, and investors sort of thought, and the president was talking about it here, so we need to talk about inequality. So with PRI and Fiona's um, support, you know, we started uh, trying to socialize the idea with investors. It went great. Went all the way around the world. Uh, talking to asset owners primarily. I work with you know, labor-affiliated pension fund trustees. They're deeply engaged. The labor question is central to how they frame the discussion. A lot of talk about inequality. It's been a lot harder to have people do things. And this point about what collective action is the problem, I mean, all, all of these are very real barriers, but there's some very clear things. If you go to the PRI's website, you'll see some very clear steps that investors can take that aren't going to substitute for public sector behavior but they're gonna to lead to it if we're lucky. And I think the parable that we tell of divestment from South Africa is uh, relevant here. Uh, what made the divestment movement work in the US was investors' voices being thrown into a collective discussion about a moral issue. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, um, the last thing I, I wanna say is that, um, and then I really will stop. Uh, inequality looks like the kind of topic responsible investment and ESG was designed to address. It's coming down the pike, big macro, you know, uh, a sectoral, a secular trend. Um, like climate, it, it is to the S as climate is to the E, we all said. But it turns out um, that a lot of the reasons that make climate tractable in conventional investment discussion do not apply to inequality. And we need to have a different way to discuss. It's, it's great to push back against share buybacks as a short-term strategy that enhances inequality and is, has long-term, you know, uh, poor outcomes for companies. I believe that. There's all kinds of things investors can do. But how investors, this thing that Rebecca uh, um, brought up at the end, how investors participate in a multi-sector, 
uh, public discussion of how we shape the system so that it includes everybody is going to require a different voice. I mean, I know I've talked with Fiona about this. PRI is working on this sort of thing. Uh, but it's a problem we have to wrestle with, and we don't talk about it much as investors. We leave that sort of role of investors as citizens to the side, and that's not going to get this problem addressed. So thank you, David. Rebecca, uh, I know you're not a psychologist. However, what would drive humans to only respond when it's an emergency, when the train's actually crashing, other than self-interest and greed? Oh, oh dear, I wish it was as easy as, as selfishness and greed. It's, so why is it so hard to change? So the first problem is you know change is coming, but you don't know when, and you're pretty sure it's not this week, and you're super, super busy. Most organizations, most people are incredibly overloaded. Um, we have a fantasy that we can multitask or we can take on six or eight tasks at once. The psychology on this is fairly clear. You really can't do more than one or two things at once, even in the course of a week. Um, most organizations are two, 300% overloaded. Most people are spinning. I nearly wrote a book called Stuck about this problem, but I was too overloaded to <laughs> get it written. <laughs> Does anyone feel overloaded in the room? Does anyone feel overloaded? Their life is yeah, like everybody's wildly overloaded. How many it's hands crazy. are going up? Yeah, no, no, but that's because they don't want to. Believe me, everybody's overloaded. Um, that's the first problem. The second problem is the short-term effect. We all use short-term metrics all the time. Um, even though we know we should focus on the longer term, we focus on the short-term metrics. And the third problem is we're super good at doing what we do now, and the different thing is hard and different. And we're not sure we have the skills. We're not sure we're going to do well. So, you know, sometimes I say, what's, why don't firms change? Number one, it's not happening. Number two, I won't make any money. And number three, I'm completely overloaded. These turn, to be, these turn out to be specious objections. The firms that use them get creamed. <laughs> um, but it's very easy to fall into. I was surprised at the hostility around the minimum wage conversation in the previous election. Were you? And what's the source of that? No, not in at this all. Country? Not at all. Um, because raising wages is clearly a cost, like clearly and immediately. And I say to you, mumble, mumble, in the long term, you'll be glad if you change your operating practices to take advantage of your higher skilled labor and your more committed people. And, and you're listening and you're going like, you don't understand. I have to make payroll. I'm raising my, I'm raising my wages. My payroll's just gone up. So there's so little space in many companies. I mean, seriously, I think this is where investors could play a huge role, is if, because you're in danger of pushing firms too, too hard. And with a little bit of space, with a little bit of support, a lot of these policies would make, I think, a great deal of money for individual firms and for the economy. Yeah. So, the, can I say, so there's sort of the growth of uh, shareholder value maximization in theory and the growth of inequality and the pressures investors have put on companies all ran together. And investors, were they to adopt a different approach towards companies, um, could play a key role in sort of shifting other parts of the discourse. But, but you have to be really careful, right? Because they all ran together, and in the beginning that was fine. Why? Because we had a functional government that was putting in place appropriate policies to control some of the, the downsides of full-on attack capitalism. 
mean, I'm a big fan of full-on attack capitalism. GDP has quintupled in my father's lifetime, and the population has tripled. I mean, this is amazing, right? So really pushing really hard is amazing. The trouble is when you start to erode all the social and political supports, yeah. then the whole thing becomes. So the issue, I'm always nervous about, and notice I didn't say stakeholder capitalism is the answer, because it, it's not. <laughs> Like, what we need is policy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, but you've also got but investors sitting in the room. stakeholder capitalism is a way to policy. Yeah. Yeah. Every one of the 80-something asset owners still in the room from 20 countries are invested, by example, in one of the shittiest employees in the world called Walmart. It employs 2.2 million Americans, and Walmart is the biggest abuser of the working poor, possibly, in corporate America, yet it's in every portfolio, and they've banned unions, they won't allow any negotiations to go on whatsoever within Walmart. What do we do about that? They're too big not to own, aren't they? Oh, so you're asking me two questions. One is, is Walmart an evil company? To which the answer is actually no. Happy to talk about that. But the other is, suppose Walmart were an evil company, because believe me, there are evil companies out there, but they're really big, so you have to hold them. So let me answer the second question. I'll tell you, I'll give you a very brief answer to the first. So my, you should know I'm a huge fan of Walmart. We could talk more about why. But when I went to visit them for the first time, I came back from Bentonville, I was like, oh, Walmart, Walmart, amazing. And my son looked at me and he said, Rebecca, I believe you because you're my mum, but nobody else is going to. <laughs> but it turns out they're doing a great deal. They won't do unions. No one will do unions. I already said that. No one will do, you don't want a union, right? Nobody wants a union because you lose control. So it's very frightening. These new ways of managing are losing control. But your question, you have to hold some of these big people because it's a huge chunk of the economy, right? How do you think about that? So you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say engagement. I'm going to say collective engagement. I'm going to say clear milestones. You know, so tell me you're going to make a difference and you're going to raise the wages and tell me by when. David, has uh, any, have any of the investors, asset owners you've worked with made any substantial change? So sure, I mean, I think there's plenty of substantial change. I'm not sure that everyone's anti-labor, uh, um, although I agree in the U.S. I'm generalizing horribly. Yeah, US well, I just specific. wanted to just, yeah. Just, yeah, U.S. specific versus today. Yeah. So yeah, the U.S. is anti-labor unions, but the rest of the world's actually not. And not everyone in the U.S. But Sorry. let's let's say so. How have large funds had some kind of impact? The New York funds. You heard from John Adler on Sunday. They adopted a new responsible contractor policy that bleeds into all their real assets investments. It is a way to highlight the high road companies and try to avoid the low road companies. That bleeds out into the real estate and construction projects that they do, including the new renewables projects that they'll probably invest in. That's not a small change. It's just not enough without the policy. It's the way to get the policy. It's a way to get the policy. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Because it, it legitimates it economically. It's like we're not all going to go bankrupt. And you're, of course, quite right. And forgive my US centricity um, in many parts of the world. Your accent sounds so different to that. <laughs> I speak normally. You have a straight Australian accent, and David has an American <laughs> yeah, accent. And I'm a hick. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been in the States a very long time. Uh, but yes, it's a step. It's an incredibly important step because it makes it plausible and possible and creates political support for, for the measure. Any final questions or comments from the floor? Please, just announce who you are. Uh, Chris Newton from IFM Investors. Great conversation. We've talked about the individual impact on the workers and about inequality, which is fundamentally a problem, long-term problem for investors in our view and my personal view as well. 
It's interesting in your thoughts around inequality and the automation impacts and so on about where it will happen between mm. cities and regional areas and if you had any thoughts around that because that to me that's another train coming down the, the, the train line. Um, the difference of what will happen between cities and regional areas in inequality mm. and workers. So as I say this, I should reveal that I was the first business analyst in McKinsey's London office. Because what I'm going to say next is, have you seen McKinsey's report just out this week on the effect of AI on the African-American population in the US? So they're projecting that the jobs that will be hardest hit are more rural jobs, less skilled jobs, uh, driving, everybody's worried about driving, but a lot of the basic service jobs um, I think it's very important in this conversation to realize that we have a choice about how this technology is employed. So a little while ago, I was at an NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, conference on artificial intelligence and its effect on productivity. And we had a very wide range of faculty, and they all made the same presentation. They stood up and they said, AI could be the, the biggest boon to the human race since the harnessing of coal 200 years ago. It could transform the economy, immense improvement in productivity. Pause, if we get the politics right. So there are people working on how we make AI and robotics complements to less skilled labor rather than substitutes. But substitution is easy, you need less imagination, it seems to solve an immediate problem. So we will substitute if we're not careful. And the risk is we will accelerate the gap between the cities and the rural areas, between the symbol manipulators and everybody else. Huge issue. Really quickly, we're going to wrap up. Fiona Reynolds at the PRI. And we know that you have a white paper on your website from the PRI. I'm going to give- Excellent white paper. Thank you. you. Helped by David, of course. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we have in this paper, but uh, I just wanted to point out to d deal with inequality, but we've, we have an engagement on, and this has been one of the hardest things we've ever been... At, we've ever engaged on, because we do lots of collective engagement, is getting companies to disclose their tax policy so that we can understand what their tax policy is and then trying to get companies to pay tax. You know, what is your tax policy? Is it not to pay any? Tell us. Country by country reporting on your tax so that we can see what is getting paid. So I do think if everyone paid their fair share, we could at least go some way into solving inequality. But it's a very, very difficult issue with corporations. And it's the perfect responsible investment issue, right? Because short term, you're going to make more money if you don't pay any tax. Long term, if you destabilize the productive base of your economy, you're not going to exist. And if you're a pension fund for public sector workers in California, I just saw Dana nod, uh, where's your money going to come in from the people you have if you've destroyed the public sector? Um, so I think tax is the perfect question, but it's been the hardest for people to talk about. So I'm glad we've solved the issue. Um, maybe we've, uh, I hope, stimulated your brains, like on many other issues the last three days. But certainly this one, uh, I would think, uh, as I said at the outset, it's a passion for me for a bunch of reasons. But I, it seems to me that when the public get on board with self-interest and what can be destroying their life, they do make change. And for those of you who have been to Johannesburg, by example, 
Um, I don't see much fun in being the rich white guy behind big razored wired fences with machine guns at the door to keep the 99% others out. I don't think being a billionaire is going to be much fun or being a millionaire is going to be much fun on this trajectory. There's a lot of self-interest, including for everyone in this room, uh, personally and for your members, I would suggest. Uh, if we can just get to the, get to the uh, understanding of the self-interest, then that would might maybe help it a little bit. On the union thing, by the way, there's some great white papers on this, as you might expect, on the, at the ITUC website, yeah. the International Train, Trade Union Confederation, the peak body of all unions in Brussels, in Belgium, where my sister is the global head of economic policy. <laughs> and they're doing lots of great work uh, in almost every other country of the world. They get traction and the unions are having an impact on exactly these kinds of issues and exactly just transitions on climate and fair work pay and you know, safety standards and a whole bunch of other things. Unfortunately, America still doesn't seize it as a warring faction and won't uh, let most unions onto work sites or into businesses whatsoever. On that note, however, we are out of time. We've got to go to our closing session. Would you please put your hands together for Rebecca and David. <laughs> <laughs>